Hey guys, before we get going, if you use trading apps, you got to check out eToro. It's a good way to gain exposure to Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies while still getting your fix with the more traditional assets that you might know more about or just want more exposure to. eToro is also a social trading platform, which means it's kind of like social media and trading together. With copy trading, you can copy or just sort of adapt to the trading strategies of some of the best traders worldwide on the platform. This is not only going to give you exposure to how people are buying Bitcoin, but it's also going to show you what people are doing when they're expecting downturns or, you know, one of those bull runs. So head over to eToro.com to get started on your 2020 portfolio today. eToro, smart crypto trading made easy. Hey all, Dave Hollerith here. I'm sure you're all at home now, jonesing for some choice Bitcoin content. The price has dropped pretty significantly. A lot of people think it's a response to the news that came out of Italy. Their economy is essentially shut down, and now a lot of other governments across the world are doing a similar thing. Pretty obvious in times of such great uncertainty, people are looking to cash. And if you're paying attention to what the US is doing, you might see shockingly low, close to zero interest rates. There's plenty of questions around whether or not the Fed lowering interest rates is gonna do anything. And also the long-term consequences of lower interest rates can be pretty negative. We're talking lower wages, unemployment, and of course, inflation. But on today's episode, I'm not gonna actually ride on this economic news pipeline fallout. Even as holders' hands are getting weak and they're starting to sell Bitcoin, I think the vast majority of people who believe in this technology are starting to understand how much chaos can come when a central bank dictates monetary policy. This is the original narrative that guided some of the earliest people who worked on and developed Bitcoin after Satoshi left. One of those people was Amir Taki. Taki was drawn to Bitcoin by its promise of open source development. He was one of Bitcoin's first developers and perhaps one of the infamously most focused and outspoken on maintaining privacy and freedom from authority. In this episode, I've got an interview with Taki, who after years spent with the Syrian Democratic Forces fighting the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria and helping build their somewhat new democratic society is now contributing to multiple cryptocurrency and privacy projects not yet revealed to the public. Some people say the Amir Taki of 2014, the creator of Dark Wallet, and the one who first initiated the proposal for the BIP system, is completely different from the Amir Taki of today. Taki is an outspoken critic of many people in the Bitcoin ecosystem, as well as its overall direction. So I'll let you be the judge on some of the stuff he's saying. And I would encourage you, even if you fundamentally disagree with some of the things Taki says, listen to the entire interview. There's plenty of insight to be gleaned from Taki's perspective. And there's a slight echo on my side of the recording. Apologies for that. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay sane, and hold on. This ride's only going to get more interesting. Here's my interview with Amir Taki. Amir, you were one of the first Bitcoin developers. You created uh, the Bitcoin software library, LeBitcoin, as well as Dark Wallet, the first privacy-focused Bitcoin wallet to include a built-in CoinJoin mixer. But your team also came up with what later became the Dot Onion Market Open Bazaar. Um, and this is all to say you, you've experienced Bitcoin's early development and were a major influence to that development. 
those are the same years when some of our listeners uh, wouldn't consider themselves as part of the Bitcoin community. And for those people, can you sort of explain what that time was like as someone who had eyes on the Bitcoin code? Yeah, it was a very optimistic time. You know, um, there were these very uh, hardcore but fringe communities like the libertarians and the free software people and the crypto anarchists who kind of converged and it was and you know we got this um kind of mixing of these different ideologies in a very unique that led to this very unique blend which was kind of invigorating that anytime you went on the forum people were constantly talking about the evils of central banking and what we must do to overthrow you know the state monopoly on money so it was it was very interesting time to be in there people were very ambitious they're very driven um you've also had a lot of uh, strong interest in anarchy and i was curious about um sort of like how that came about when you were younger i think i think uh, there's a lot of people that they kind of feel that there's something intuitively wrong in the world and they're always searching in their lives and i happened to be when i was 16 uh, discover about the open source movement which for me was absolutely incredible that there are people all around the world who build uh, this technology this technology which is play a foundational role in our infrastructure in our internet and uh, it's and I read the manifesto of Richard Stallman in which he was calling for people to create a new free technology and I found that I found that awesome like I I, I kind of decided at 16 I was like I'm going to devote my life to make this dream happen and it was something that captured my mind for the next decade you know, I became totally wrapped up in it. And, you know, um, I also got involved with technologists who are very much in, into politics. Um, and, you know, went through many different political evolutions before, you know, and, and really the anarchists, it's not totally a complete ideology, but it's probably the better of the bunch in which it asks um, questions about the nature of society and hierarchy and you know how we can create um, a richer more sophisticated society i imagine you've probably read um, homage to catalonia by george orwell but um, i've read that book and a, a lot of like um, your life experiences sort of, I, I feel like, are echoed in that book. Um, I don't know if, if it means anything to you, the book. <laughs> that, that book, is, that book uh, came to me at a real low point when I was in the front line in Syria. I was oh, like, wow. what the fuck am I doing here? This is absolute disaster, um, really poorly disorganized. And I kind of read that book and I was like, okay, all of this is pretty normal for for any kind of revolution you know everything you describe in that book it pretty much matched my yeah. experience in 2015 
um, yeah that that's pretty amazing timing yeah um yeah george orwell um, he was a remarkable guy he was and and i really like what he said um about writing which is um if you're not able to communicate an idea simply and directly to people then you don't really understand the idea yourself and i think we can we, we can yeah. take a lot from that not just as writers but in terms of technology like the technology in general if we can't build simple to use or simple to understand uh, and i'm not just talking about products or apps but i'm talking about the actual pieces of the technology that we use to build technology ecosystems in general if you can't build those components to be simple to be elegantly architectured then you know maybe we don't actually understand the thing that we're building itself you know and there's something to be said for simplicity and minimalism as a as a design philosophy yeah i i've seen this um sort of take shape uh in CoinFloor, uh, the UK uh, cryptocurrency exchange, they, they've recently sort of re relaunched their services um, to only focus on Bitcoin and uh, especially reduce sort of uh, day trading speculative kind of buys. So I've kind of definitely, I've definitely seen a shift towards uh, simplifying, making, making things easier, um, at least for, for users in the Bitcoin community. Um, and I'm curious, this is a big question and I kind of want to like ask it, get your answer. And obviously we'll keep coming back to it, but, uh, how has, uh, the Bitcoin from, you know, your original, I want to say 2014 days to the present, how, how have you seen that community change? The early Bitcoin was like really driven and focused and be, having focus is important because Focus is what enable you to execute and to deliver. And what we've seen happen since then is that, you know, those simplistic ideologies which kind of converged around Bitcoin haven't really been able to answer all of the questions and kind of guide us in terms of strategy to kind of go forwards and to take opportunity and to be successful. And so what's happened is we've seen a kind of diversification from these ideologies and you know one branch of that is the people who left and made ethereum and you know they're into unicorns and rainbows and really vague abstract thing abstract projects that i don't know um and then we've got this weird kind of regressive or um uh reactionary bitcoin culture which is kind of go which is kind of reasserting that you know we're not hippies we're not vegans we eat meat and and very uh, very uh opposed to any kind of change or progress or development or advancement and reality is is that you know social matters are complex and hard and you know we require some level of sophistication and strategy and development of thoughts you know to really be able to use this thing to like be able to make something of this thing so 
what's what I would say is that the difference is that today, you know, people are a bit lost, and that's why you see all these silly uh, lifestyle focuses or you know uh, silly uh, because you know, like you know, as human beings, you know, we we come into existence and then like we're like, okay, we're here. And then it's like, okay, like I, I need something. I need to do, I need to occupy myself with something, some kind of like life goal that like make me feel significant or purposeful or meaningful. And that's the whole point about having a role or having some kind of place, you know, that you feel that you're not just a, a nothing. You're like actually valuable. And, and you know, um, people are always searching for these things and people, people, try to find random things to preoccupy themselves with. And the thing is, is that um, the the society that we live in, we know that it's a fake society, that, uh, that the reality of what we're being told on the TV versus the reality of what's happening around us, you know, is, is very different. And, you know, it's kind of like in the Soviet Union where, you know, people could see all around them that the economy was collapsing and, you know, they they knew what they were being told on the TV was not real, but they couldn't imagine any other reality that they were living in. So they kind of continued their existence, kind of continued doing things the way they were doing it. And so, you know, we're in this very strange place inside of crypto culture where we're facing significant challenges to the technology, to the power of it being co-opted by external actors, by uh, actors that don't necessarily have our philosophical vision or, or goal in mind, you know. And um, maybe I'm talking about people like Consensus, or maybe I'm talking about central bank digital currencies, or, you know, it could have been Facebook, but I don't think... Facebook is Libra currency is going to succeed now, but the only way that we're going to challenge these things is by having a coherent analysis, um, system of organization, you know, some kind of like narrative that kind of like set out like a path forwards and that we know what the projects that we are to have to work on um, so that we can develop something that's coordinated and you know, I've seen this happen like repeatedly in many projects, in many movements over my life. Um, you know, the best example of that is the free software movement that, you know, we worked on free software in my early 20s. I was completely devoted to free software and it was tough. It was really difficult. And the problem is, is that as a movement, we didn't organize strategically. We didn't think about how we can construct something that you know, that people could work inside that system and we can like together deliver something bigger. It was too dispersed. And you got you had this problem where there would be like a huge amount of focus on some random projects or you'd get like a technologist who, you know, he'd spent years working on something, which, you know, maybe in the grand scheme of things wasn't so important for us as a movement to get from A to B. And then you had like these other projects which were like really key, but didn't get enough attention or enough focus. And, you know, part of that is about the system, how we like, as either 
like an organization or a federation of organizations or whatever, like how we allocate resources and, you know, like how, you know, people are supported to work on projects. But the bigger emphasis that I want to draw attention to, which a lot of people always, when I talk about this, they focus on the kind of system underlying it, but that's not really the center of this. In some ways, like the system of organization is, is kind of whatever. It's like you, you can either have it or not have it, but the real focus that's important is the narrative, is the kind of ideas that we develop, that we kind of analyze, we kind of like have a roadmap, we like go, kind of go, because okay, look, if I explain, when I, when I build a product, you know, I can, I can write a really shitty code and I can like get it out there, boof, it's out, and I have something that's out and then it's like for that, that thing to grow, I need to like bring on more developers and I need to bring on more resources so that it can expand. But as it expands, you know, it's, it's, it's because there was no roadmap, because there was no pre-planning beforehand, it kind of become an unmanageable mess. And then maybe as a movement in terms of our trajectory, not just in terms of like a single product, but a range of products, you know, like we have to think about the core technology. Okay, how do we build the core technology in some way that it's able to hit all of these targets along the way? And the problem is, is that that kind of thought is not being done inside of cryptocurrency. And when it is being kind of touched upon, it's like really vague and it's not concrete. So we have to kind of develop that dimension to our kind of movement. Uh, the problem is, is that there is not kind of interest um, in this kind of like higher level of development because a lot of the focus is is maybe is like very short-term focused and maybe influenced by like American startup culture which is exactly what I said like you know like get a whole bunch of people together do a race start moving pushing things out hire more people, grow, expand, do another raise, you know, as opposed to, okay, let's design our software architecture. Let's like plan our infrastructure. Let's develop our libraries, you know, so that we can start to develop products and not just any products, but products with a focus. Like, and what, how did we decide what that focus is? You know, because as a cryptocurrency or as, uh, as this emerging field of technology, like really, if we're really honest, like the goal of the technology is because we want power. Like we want to, we have some ideas about the world and we want to, our ideas to gain power. We want to put this technology as a powerful tool in service of those ideas. So, you know, it's not, and, and, you know, like some people is like, oh, you know, I want to make loads of money. And that's really like, that's really like a simpler, lower level way for people who, kind of want to gain power and they don't really know why they want to gain power um but yeah we have to kind of um we have to realize that this older ideologies or like mixed bag of concepts that we had before they were great in the early days of bitcoin you know they've kind of like they can't they had they had, they were really they they gave drive and ambition to the project and they are our roots and we have to get back to our roots but we also have to realize that 
you know that is not the thing by itself like we have to kind of develop or expand our ideas we have to expand our vision you know and and that that's why i'm i'm trying to talk about narrative and talk about culture uh because you know um it's really important to think about the paradigms or the concepts that drive programmers because uh, or the, or your technologists or your movement as a whole because this is the thing that the free software movement suffered for free software movement had like a very big vision of society and it ended up because it wasn't able to properly organize itself it wasn't able to properly develop as a movement it kind of became stunted and what happened was it got captured by open source movement by a bunch of business guys and then um you know if you talk to people today some some developers open source developers will say you know linux was a success linux was great free software was great but in reality um you know uh free software movement kind of um were you know like developing uh uh free software we were developing uh, uh linux all of these tools and you know now who are the entities that dominate open source on a large scale on an infrastructure scale where well, it's all the big corporations so you know we basically developed technology to make a bunch of corporations rich so i, I don't define that as a success like a successful movement you know and you know there's a bunch of random github repos with like small projects uh for small fragments but you know we don't have like a decent open source video editor we don't have it's like these large projects which require coordination and teams of people like working together it's kind of the thing that we lost and yeah. that is like part of the whole idea of um unix philosophy like we have these concepts mapped out like how do we build large technology at scale um you know but like guided by some kind of like uh goal or or, or dream or as a community um this is all of the work of the people working on uh technology and the in the the unix philosophy the hacker movement the early free software movement we have to kind of take that culture and revive it and put it in service of cryptography and cryptography is really interesting because you know there um there was um a lot of these concepts in uh, academia since the 70s uh since the 90s since the 2000s and they've just been kind of there siloed in different kind of areas and now for the first time like people are like taking these ideas and they're trying to put them together in like new ways that we didn't that nobody really envisioned before and coming out with like code that we can like use or like interesting products which you know not necessarily it doesn't necessarily always work but you know it's a very it's kind of like a uh, very interesting time like and and you know these new peer to peer network technologies and cryptographies that we can use to build products and we can use these products to build an ecosystem and we can we can use this to create um uh, markets that are outside of the control of the state where the 
where uh, the state has like no power over these markets that give uh, different communities or different organizations or, or groups of people who don't have a voice where they can operate in these in in these kind of spheres that we create and that's that's a very a powerful uh, tool that we can put in service of um, of, of this future yeah you, uh, you seem like uh, you have a strong understanding of, of the power of, of cultural movement um, and I think narrative is a part of that and I, I want to get into that but just thinking about those early days um, and sort of like how you communicate with an open source uh, community you're also known for creating the BIP system to create a wider dissemination of information about things being proposed for Bitcoin. Uh, can you tell me about why and how you created the BIP system? Yeah, so um, in the early days of Bitcoin, um, you know, after Satoshi left, he kind of split the project in three parts and he gave each person a different part. And um, mm -hmm. Gavin got commit access to the repo and Sirius got access to the website. And there were five of us on this uh, Bitcoin.org website, which was like Gavin, uh, Neil Schneider, Sipa, uh, me, and um, Sirius. Um, and but after my first talk in uh, Amsterdam about Bitcoin, uh, Gavin Andreessen, he like messaged me and he said, look, I didn't like, really like the way you were talking. And, you know, I think you should stop talking about Bitcoin publicly. And I was basically like, I was like, dude, fuck off. Like, you know, you can't tell me what to do. I talked to... What were you talking about? I talked to um, an audience of bankers. It was the EPCA conference. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I said, look, this is a radical technology. You guys can't stop it. Like we're here and this is what we're going to do to you. Gavin didn't want that. Gavin wanted to work with the regulators. He wanted to work with the financial institutions. He wanted to onboard the big money into Bitcoin. You know, he wanted to become legit. And I said, and you know, I was the opposite side of that ideological pole. So Gavin started to put up roadblocks for me to participate in the project. Um, and, you know, he, him and his clique of people, which um, then, um, and then, you know, this, he started to sideline me from Bitcoin. And, you know, uh, every time I tried to make a commit, or I tried to contribute code to the, to the Bitcoin core project, it was blocked. So I was like, okay, it's impossible for me to work with these people. So that's why I started working on Lib Bitcoin and I started to rewrite Bitcoin source code to have alternative implementation because I thought it was very dangerous to have a single implementation which was in the hands of Gavin. We needed some kind of counterbalance. And then the BIP system as well was like Gavin, he's not smart. He doesn't have like, he's not a very good developer and he had, he had these crazy ideas that he wanted to modified Bitcoin with. So I was like, okay, there have to be some control to limit his power. And that's why I proposed the BIP system so that there's a standardization process so that it has to go through public review. So these guys couldn't just mm -hmm. 
make changes to the Bitcoin system as they saw fit. It was to kind of stop or limit changes to Bitcoin. The problem is, is that culture that we initiated in those in those days was kind of like completely overtaken the mind space of Bitcoin. It's like kind of completely gone towards its trajectory, and that was not the the intent originally. The intent was to have Bitcoin be conservative against changes, but it wasn't to stop any kind of progress happening inside of Bitcoin, which, you know, Bitcoin as a system, it's very poorly engineered. It's very inefficient. And the the kind of um, developments in cryptography that are happening now are going to lead to a system that's gonna, eventually going to supersede Bitcoin at some point. It's kind of like inevitable at this point. Are you are you speaking purely from a privacy standpoint point or are you talking about just a cryptocurrency in general? Cryptocurrency. Um, look at this. Uh, there is now all this talk about stateless blockchains or RSA accumulators um, or with zero knowledge proofs that, you know, eventually we're going to have a cryptocurrency where you can run a full node on your mobile phone and it's perfectly anonymous and the supply is auditable. It's like... You know what does Bitcoin offer over that system, which is like it's it's got a I mean it has it has a f- the first mover advantage that um, sure. I think a lot of people tout. Uh, do do you believe in that? Do you think that something like that could be implemented on Bitcoin? I it it could be implemented on Bitcoin, but it's taken how many years to implement or signatures, and that's ridiculous. Like it's absolutely ridiculous, and the code is a mess. Uh, the development team is not doing a good job. Um, it's um, Blockstream is a failure as a company, so it's there isn't really a strong narrative that give like drive to Bitcoin projects. So it's it's like I'm not unless there's like some great change, I'm not too optimistic. And these people that sit at the top of the project, you know, they're too corrupted by the power that they have they're too their interests are too entrenched by continuing or furthering what exists they're not they're not first of all i don't think that they're capable of enacting the kind of radical kind of shift in directives that bitcoin need as a project to be able to face up to the challenges that we're that we're facing as a community from you know uh, other entities that are adopting the technology that we are we have produced or we are producing and second of all i just don't think that it's in their interest to i just don't think that they are motivated by the same socio-political dimension uh, that a lot of us are driven by i think honestly that they have found a position they found somewhere which is kind of comfortable and you know they kind of enjoy that kind of uh, uh, community they'd like they found that meaning or purpose that gives them kind of value as a human being and they they want to hold on to that position so i've I've had experience like interacting with these guys and i was really disappointed in how limited their vision and their scope is for bitcoin and you know how um, unwilling they are to kind of um, engage with these ideas on a high level, and, and you think, and maybe you think, okay, Ethereum is 
it's like more uh, opt optimistic, there's more hope in Ethereum, but it's it's like Ethereum also, it's like too corrupted, you know, it's like um, not able to organize itself effectively and deliver. It's like too wishy-washy. Yeah, um, but I, I will say the um, Ethereum community, like the actual community, not the leadership, uh, the community is has a very rich resource of talent and forward-thinking people uh, that's like really worth engaging with or recruiting from. And it's kind of a mistake when uh, Bitcoin tried to uh, cut itself off from other cryptocurrency communities and present itself as above or superior. Uh, because um, really, uh, that's not who the main enemy is. Like the well, that's not like where we draw the line at. Like really, um, and and that's what I mean about this shift in focus. It's become a kind of lifestyle or a kind of identity politics where it's like I'm a Bitcoiner, I'm a uh, Ethereum person, I'm this, I'm that. It doesn't really matter. Like nobody really cares. Um, at the end of the day, it's, it's cryptocurrency, it's cryptography, it's, 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 it's an entity in itself now that's beyond any one of these singular projects. The really big question is, is one of economics, of the state, of the, of the system, of central banks, of financial networks. It's like that's what we should be engaged in. Um, but I, it's, it's a lot of like really silly diversions at this point. Um, yeah, I, I feel like, well, to one of your earlier points about the American startup community, um, I'll acknowledge that I'm very much a part of that. And the conversations around uh, mainstream adoption right now are very much sort of what you're um, sort of uh, speaking against or, or warning. Um, you know, I see some of a lot of the identity politics around Bitcoin, people, you know, being saying they're Bitcoiners on Twitter as sort of a way to simplify the narrative and people who are working on different projects as somehow taking away from that narrative. Like, where would you like, how would you sort of explain what you're saying from that context? Well, it's like, um, I don't really see Bitcoin people, uh, that much talking about their narrative. In fact, I don't even think they have a narrative anymore. I think there's just a vestige of something that existed before a long time ago, which is like people just paying homage to ideas that kind of get you into the community, get you accepted. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah I'm against central banks. Cool, you're a libertarian, you're one of us. But it's it's really doesn't go beyond that. And you're not going to get far if um, if the conversation is not elevated to a higher level. But um, I'm not against uh, American startup culture in the same way that I'm not totally for um, for like um, you know uh, like a world world full of acad academic philosophers. You know, it's um, I am like this the thing about uh, making a startup and how you structure a project and how you like put categories of people as founders as staff as investor 
you know, how you um, make a timeline, a budget, allocate resources. This is all really useful knowledge about how to execute and how to get something done and like how to make things happen. And I'm totally for that. And that's knowledge that was kind of missing from uh, the free software culture, which is what existed in the beginning. Uh, but also mm-hmm. the problem is, is that free software, it had the philosophy, it had the beating heart that drove the project forward. You know, like those, you know, those people that they really believe in something and because they really believe in something, you know, they devote their mind completely to a thing. They, you know, they uh, even willing to forego uh, profit. Uh, they're like not just doing it nine to five, but they're like really in the thing, you know, those people are like very special. And those people are like, what really carry your project forwards? You're, it's, it's the people that is not so valuable is not the paid employees. It's not the really expensive cryptographer or the really rockstar dev that you're like paying a huge salary to. And it's important not to lose, lose the focus because when we lose the focus, that's when we start to get co-opted, that we no longer like realize like, okay, where is the actual core of, of, our, of our movement lie? And um, that's kind of what's happening now is because everybody's so focused on, you know, doing something or getting something out the door. But there, it's not really like, um, nobody's stopping to think, okay, like, where are we going towards? Or like, for what are we doing this? And so you get like one project, and you, you mentioned Open Bazaar before, you know, Open Bazaar, everybody gets really excited about it. You know, it doesn't deliver, it doesn't work out. It doesn't deliver to people's expectations about like what will be the effects of it. Then, you know, people like lose hope in that project, then something new comes along, people invest all their interest in that, everybody start pushing that thing, that thing also doesn't work out, you know, something new come along, people go into that thing, it happens over and over and over again until people start to get exhausted, people start to lose hope, and that's like a process of just being, it just repeats itself over and over and over again. I've seen it happen in all throughout all open source projects and the entire movement as a whole. What I'm saying is like, you know, before we start pushing into the next big projects to like move forwards quickly, let's like slow down a bit. Let's like really think about like, where are we going towards? Like, why are we doing this? You know, like, let's start to like look geographically. What are the key regions that are going to be popping up in the future? It's like when I was in Syria, you know, I was like, um, I, I, I was also in Syria this last year as well. And my like main role or responsibility is like reviewing technical projects for North Syria for a region of five million people. So you know that we can get technical projects approved. And um, one of the projects was about telephony and internet. And people people often ask me, oh yeah, what about like mesh networks and all this? I was like, look, you can't deliver like a quality production scale uh, networking system to people with mesh networks. It just doesn't work. Like you don't. You need to have some kind of like structural planning of backbones of, of like architecture for how you lay the pipes in the ground. 
And, you know, I was looking at open source solutions, like how can I build like mobile phone networks and stuff like that. And there's, there's like a few things on the internet. There's like a few like rando projects, like open BTS, but it's not something you can deploy like to like on a national scale. And in the end, it's like, uh-huh. we literally just had to cut a deal with a private company to come and like lay the fiber down to come and create the telephony networks, which is not great because it's like, you know, now you like give a private entity control over your, over your telecommunications infrastructure and you don't know uh, what hostile powers exist outside, what kind of surveillance infrastructure they install inside your telephony, which is a shame. It's like an, it's like a good example of like how open source failed to, has failed to deliver. And then I was like looking at cryptocurrency. I was like, okay, how can we deploy cryptocurrency? And I started to contact like people from cryptocurrency community. And I was like, a lot of these like so-called leaders, um, you know, I just saw that they're like very limited in their thinking. You know, they're not able to think on a bigger scale. And I was like, okay, these, okay, I'm not getting any support from any of these people. And, you know, people, all the people, all the people on inside of Bitcoin every year do rounds in conferences, giving lectures. Um, so then I was like, okay, 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 how do we do this ourselves? And then I started to look and I was like, okay, you need to have, you know, for people who don't have uh, mobile phones or connectivity, how do you create physical currency? Like what are the machines you need? Like what are the solutions that are out there? Where's, what's the research that's been done? You know, like, okay, like how do we create a radio network with base stations? Like how do you, how do you like create the servers? How do you link all that up? Like how about the software so that you can like uh, issue blinded credentials or like blinded tokens that you can have like anonymous instant payments and and you know like ha- have metadata in those transactions and all of this stuff like is like if you really want to if you are making an infrastructure for five million people it's completely different to if you're making it for individual for like an individual in a, making an app in an app store in a marketplace. And it's like, we're just not prepared. Like if any administration says to us in the world, okay, I want to deploy Bitcoin in our like, in our like region of like, however many people, you know, there's no group now that has the software or the infrastructure ready to go and like set up that financial network. And really that is the key important topic that we should be engaged in. It's like, now I read about Russia creating an alternative to SWIFT network because of the embargo and they're signing up Iran and China to that network, you know, but there's many other jurisdictions around the world that like we need to be creating infrastructure and we need to like be connecting them to our financial networks so they can issue financial instruments so they can extend lines of credit to other jurisdictions so that, for example, if, if in Hong Kong there's a guy who has Bitcoin, he can like extend a line of credit to Syria and he can cash out to a local pool of dollars or the people in Syria who have assets like oil can issue uh, futures or, or other finance instruments on that asset um, so that they can get investment to build their infrastructure. Or, you know, just things like this is a real great application of this technology, but we're just not thinking on that level. It's just very limited understanding of like money and economics and uh, the global geopolitical situation in general. And like, like people always like memeing, try to meme into existence 
things like Venezuela or Cyprus or Greece or Iran or any of these financial crises. But the simple fact is, is these were opportunities. They came. We were not prepared. There was nobody there to like make use of them. And they went. And that was a lost opportunity, lost opportunity in the market. It's like sad. That's a failure as a community. And it's like, that's, that's like really like the opportunities, the key opportunities that we should be facing. We should be engaged in our market so we develop better technology. But we're not. This is a bunch of technologists playing around with blockchain technology. Some of the things that I see people in Ethereum or in Bitcoin or any, any of these projects talking about, I'm like, this, this is insane. This has like no practical basis in reality. Uh, but there is like a, a brighter flip side to it, which is there is a lot of very interesting research that's happening, very interesting developments inside of cryptocurrency, which is mainly in the finance layer, in like financial products that people are developing, not in the technology level so much. Like in technology level, the stuff with zero knowledge proofs is really interesting. Uh, but the applications of the technology is very lacking, you know. Um, I saw the speech of Vitalik in Shanghai and he was talking a lot about different techniques and different mechanisms and going, oh, this thing is interesting, this other thing is interesting. But really, it was like something was lacking, you know, and the thing that was lacking was like, how does this all fit together? How do you, what's like the structure or the infrastructure that you want to create from all these little tiny pieces? You know, you can't make like a project out of just like random bits and bobs that you put together. You need to have a singular vision. And that vision is like what enable there to be focus. And with focus, what enable things to be executed and delivered. You know, and it's not and it's not just that we're talking about like there need to be a boss. You know, like a boss is like a really silly like uh, corruption of, of this concept or idea, which is that there's a guy who wake up one day as a boss and he says, oh, John, I need you to do this. Ben, you need to do this. You need to do this. You need to do this. You guy, you need to do this. Um, creative people don't work like that. Like for me, if I want to, if I need to like deliver something, you know, there's maybe there's like months where I'm like studying, you know, like where my mind start to move towards that thing you know like I start to reduce my other responsibilities and I start to like move my creative energies towards like kind of trying to manifest this thing or like deliver this thing and it's it's the same with like any program or any creative field the way the real job of a good CEO I'm talking about like good CEOs is is the narrative it's like this it's like every day coming in and saying okay look this is what we're doing. This is why we're doing the thing. And, you know, like inspire the people around them that give them like direction towards somewhere. And that's like kind of what we're like severely lacking inside of cryptocurrency. And and if and people are like so relaxed about it, they're like totally YOLO about it. Like, oh, yeah, we're going to win, blah, blah. It's inevitable. Okay, like maybe, you know, the price will go up, but it's like, will we really, you know, deliver on something like, or will you really like deliver that expectation, you know, of that of that thing that um, is that real promise for like why we're into this thing, you know, or you know, will it be some other entities that eventually that come along and you know create the cryptocurrency that most of the people use, you know, um, like I, I don't think people realize yeah, how big uh... of a threat Facebook Libra was. 
lucky the Congress was just like, no, stop. Sorry, that was also the other point that I was making, which is not enough just to have the code out there and the people are using it and running it. There's like all this other dimension of like the community, like who's making this technology. So, you know, like when I say to people, I was like, okay, Linux was a, is a failure. Like nobody uses Linux. Like everybody's using Mac computers. They go, oh no, what everybody uses Android phones. It's like what kind of success is that? Like we spent all of our energy in life to develop a free software product to make Google rich, to make some other corporations rich. Like, in, and, and, and we didn't deliver free technology. Like we've actually, we actually, if anything, like technology is like being used to construct uh, systems of mass surveillance and like mass control. And it's like, great, they're using open source software to do it. You know, it's like, um, we need to like really shift our mindset, like to have a more sophisticated understanding of technology and like really uh, uh, deepen our perspective, you know, and like, okay, like, you know, strategically, like what are we doing as a community? Where are we putting our energies? Because it's kind of ridiculous in Linux. Like we had like 20 desktops and they were all really shitty. And like everybody was like putting their energy. Every, there was like all these splits and forks because everybody was like, oh, mine's like slightly better because it has like the button over here or that like, you have this menu over here. It was like, it got really silly. And there was so many, and I'm not saying there shouldn't ever be forks, but there was also a lot of wasted energy because you know, there was up because Richard Stallman, he came along and he said, like, okay, this is what we want to do. We want to build an operating system that's free and this is how it should work. And these are the tools we need to make. And this is what I've done. And this is what we're doing. And you know, everybody was like, yeah, let's make it happen. And they started to put the energy and like make the thing and it manifested. But then after that, you know, graphical desktops started to arrive and, you know, Richard Stallman took a took a step back and nobody really took stepped up and the community just started to fragment and get dispersed and became a bit lost and you know that's where we find ourselves today linux didn't and then mac came out of nowhere and became like the desktop that a lot of people are using which is tragedy and it's like the same thing will happen to cryptocurrency unless we get our act together unless we learn from history like there's a whole wealth of knowledge in like history of technology or history in general. And we're just not, we're not like pulling from that resource. So it sounds like you also have spent some time looking into how Bitcoin can be deplo deployed uh, to use for uh, other dissident technological applications. Um, and I was curious uh, if you could go into that more, just how can Bitcoin be used through dissident technology or how do you see Bitcoin as a tool for transactions without third-party interference? You know, um, what's really interesting is that now in Asia, there is um, a huge amount of wealth that's like moving around in markets uh, between, and, it, and it's like wealth that's like outside of the prevailing financial order. It's, um, and it's um, moving through these markets. It's black or grey money, and you know the people and the people that have this money. They're like using different laws from different jurisdictions, you know, um, to kind of like hide their wealth, to kind of move it around, like different former British 
financial colon colony safe havens. But now it's it's kind of changing, and the states are going to the saying to these offshores like you need to limit the activity of these of these people, and they're starting to open tax audits, and they're starting to put pressure. And so the people with that wealth, they have to become more smart about how they how they use their money. Um, you know, like uh, bribing central banks or you know, like moving like physical assets across borders with like militias or or like uh, setting up financial networks for third world countries. All of that is a, a big body of wealth. Um, which is opposed to the prevailing financial order and is 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 like putting its money in in areas of activity that were previously blocked or shut off from um, the exist, existing order so that's what i was talking about like when i talk about like economy which is like people imagine mm -hmm. money which like money what is money money is like a unit of account it's like okay i have some good here i have another good it's like okay we like pretend that these goods have value and we make like a kind of spreadsheet where he's like, okay, this could have this value, this could have this value, this could, and that's like the in, in system of the market and like price discovery. And you know, there's like a money which is like issued by a central bank or like, I don't know, gold or whatever. Uh, but a lot of people like imagine like money as like some neutral instrument, like a dollar, but a, a dollar is not really a dollar. A dollar is like, like if I, if I, for example, have a Swiss bank account, um, you know, I can get, I, I, and to get that bank account, maybe I need Swiss residency and I have to pay like a huge amount of money in taxes and I have to like get fucked to be like part of their secret club, their special club, you know, because I'm an outsider, but you know, I'm part of the club. So now people, other people with Swiss bank accounts, you know, legit people, people in, with money in Switzerland, can invest money in, into my bank account. They can invest money into my uh, project or my company, you know. Uh, but it's but if I've got a Seychelles bank account, you know, they're not going to send money to a Seychelles bank account. Likewise, if I have money in a Seychelles bank account, I can't send money. I can't send my dollars to them. So it's it's like really what we should be talking about is financial networks and the utility of the credit that you have inside of these financial networks, the things that it can do, that it can enable to happen. And that's what's interesting about cryptocurrency is like we can use this technology to create financial networks which enable different economic localities, different activity that before was not enabled by the technology. That's why it's interesting. And that's why uh, I always talk about mon money laundering and drug dealing and terrorist groups because like um, really that is like the super political edge of you know changes like stuff that is downright illegal that's like completely illegal um like like terrorist organizations and you know they uh like isis has been raising money with cryptocurrencies they can send any amount of money anywhere in the world to fund their, their groups or their activities that's a very big deal i don't think realize people re i don't think people realize like how much of an enabler that technology is and people go oh yeah dollars blah do you realize how difficult dollars are to move across borders the same this technology is like 
the ability to like transmit currency instantly anywhere in the world, any amount is a big deal. It's like we've never we've like this is like a really big transformation in 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 finance um, and in technology as well because of the things that enable people to create. Like like now, if there's like some financial instrument that you want to create you, with with cryptography, you can create it. You know, like some of the I remember in the beginning of Bitcoin, it was like kind of edgy to say, "Oh yeah, I'm making a, a Ponzi scheme." Um, yeah, who wants to invest? And everybody would be like, "Yeah, Ponzi schemes, woo!" Like now today, people draw bonded curves. You know, it's basically a Ponzi scheme to like do uh, fundraising of projects. But it's like very interesting exploration into like new mechanisms, like funding mechanisms. You know, so um, this is like kind of like a kind of renaissance that we're like facing in like cryptography and technology and finance and you know, um, like maybe like a kind of renaissance is overdue. Um, but, you know, also um, I talked about terrorist groups, but, you know, for example, um, you know, like uh, uh, North Syria or, or Rojava, like the ability, you know, like, for example, they're an upstart political entity, which is like surrounded by hostile powers. And even though, like, for example, America and Russia or Turkey and Russia are enemies or like, you know, they're like opposed to each other. They also have a lot of like military and economic agreements on many levels together. They work together on many levels. Like the stuff you see in the media where they're opposed to each other is, is like one thing. And yes, that, that there is like clashes of interests, like opposed interests, like, you know, maybe one guy support the rebels and another guy support Assad, which is like the Russians. But, you know, they also work together on in many other ways. Like they have many, many other interests. And in the case of North Syria, you know, like they're in a very difficult situation where basically everybody is hostile to them. And uh -huh. there's a prevailing financial order, which is like, you know, like if you want to be able to, I don't know, gain some, uh, be able to purchase some kind of parts on an op on the mar open market. First of all, you're blocked from the open market. They, you know, like they say, okay, you're not allowed even with your own money to have access to the market. So then like maybe they, they send representatives around the world, you know, like to open shell companies and, you know, start talking with other companies it might, it could be like an agricultural part. It could be something like really s silly or stupid, um, you know, or something that's like necessary. And, you know, start to and talk with a company and the company's like, yeah, I'll agree to sell you this thing. So then it's like, okay, how do we get the money to them? You know, like, how do you get the money to th that company? So the ability to like transmit cryptocurrency, like from one place to another is like a big deal. You know, it's like enable that, a new political entity to kind of support itself and that's why also the liquidity of these of these pools of capital is really important that's why i'm talking about financial networks because like we haven't really been kind of focused on uh building out the building out the technology or the infrastructure to enable these financial networks and we haven't been engaged in the places that actually need these financial networks and so because we haven't been we haven't been engaged we haven't got the feedback 
and that feedback hasn't enabled us to think about how we need to improve the technology so we can go forwards. So you traveled to Syria after your time as a Bitcoin developer and you served in the army for um, about a year and then spent uh, the next two years working on um, development projects. And uh, correct me if any of this is wrong, but uh, uh, I was curious, what, is, what was it like to go from being an open source software developer to becoming, uh, getting more in involved in the political development of a revolution? Yeah, so <laughs> it was kind of, <laughs> it was kind of mad, like I got shipped to a war. <laughs> I had to learn how to use a gun yeah. and everything. And I did, I literally, I was like on the, on the car and the guy was like, and I, I was like, there was like a guy there and he was like, showing me how to use the Kalashnikov. And I was like, what the fuck, man? Like, and I got to the front line and, and there was some dude and he was saying to me, don't worry. If you learn every, if you're not dead in two weeks, you'll know everything there is to know about fighting in a war. And it was like, it was so shifty. Um, but yeah, I managed to, uh, I managed to get out of that situation after a few months, which you know, like, it was a, it was a mad time. It was, it was chaos. You know, like literally, they were just shipping everyone off to the front line. Things now are a lot differently, different than back then. A lot of things have changed. It was like 2015. It was like really a mad, mad time. Um, but, you know, um, uh, it was a very good experience because, um, you know, I, uh, you have to understand that there is, uh, there is, you know, this, uh, this movement in, in Syria, which, um, is, is based around um, the ideas of Ocalan, the philosophy of uh, Ocalan, which he wrote these books in prison. Uh, but it's a very it's a very organised movement, um, and you know they were and they were able to capitalise on a very chaotic situation, which if you look now, everybody else in Syria, you know is gone if finished like all the rebels and isis and no, nobody else was able to survive except the kurdish people in the north because they were uh they were on it and they were able to like when things happen they were able to anticipate them they're able to move they're well organized they were like disciplined um and also sophisticated like also with the thought and reasoning you know um because like you have to organize like a society from scratch like in the middle of a war you have to set up a legal system you have to set up education you have to set up health you have to set up hospitals you have to set up like like um, uh, uh, media um, uh, economy agriculture industry your military everything it's like intense and so you get to, and so like being in the middle of that like seeing like an entire new political system form like you really get an understanding of like what are the troubles that you have to deal with like what are the difficulties you have to deal with for example um like for example they have the way that they hand the way that they handle security so you know there's this like idea that they want to create an autonomous um democratic free society um uh -huh. And so uh, the security, which is done in the city, 
is um, done by local neighborhood militias, which those militias like answer to, answer to uh, neighborhood assemblies. So it's the local people who are responsible for the security and policing of their area. And then there is like a professional police, which like handle checkpoints and like key areas of security. But like you, you kind of understand, like, for example, um, you know, um, if my neighbor is like, if there's like a guy down the road who's like an ISIS guy and he needs to be like arrested, I'm not, I'm personally, I'm not going to go to his house and fuck with that guy. You know, like personally, I'm, I'm not going to go to his house, but you know, that's why you need like guys who are like dressed in black, who are like anti-terror police, who are like specialized for this thing, who are going to go and, you know, arrest that guy, take that guy in and who have experience doing that. And then, but the problem is, is like, okay, we recognize that when you have these group, these, these, um, these people dressed in black, whose job is security, that also it's um, a threat to our liberty. So that's that's why you need civil society militias. That's why you need some kind of counterbalance to that. And so, you know, um, that's that's what's very interesting about their political system is like the how they try to resolve these questions of power and disparity, like, but also the practical realities of like deal of like implementing a system like a political entity that can like survive when you're surrounded by hostile powers on every side um and why is liberty important you know because that's what uh is the source of the wealth and creation and development of society but at the same time you need to like answer questions like foreign policy and security and and matters of national importance like we're seeing this virus now that's spreading around and you know really it's like you know there need to be some coordinate like coordination on like high levels like health coordination um because this thing is lethal like it's um it's not good uh but then also you know um when you have militias that are like responsible for uh, manning checkpoints or doing sec local security in a local neighborhood you know maybe they're not so professional like in how they handle things sometimes you know like a policeman is trained to handle many situations and I saw that happen like myself you know like people are, like not prepared like who are amateur in d dealing with security issues so um, you know that kind of thing like seeing it firsthand was like okay it gave me an understanding like about like okay like how do political structures work like how do people navigate political structures and how do you coordinate at scale because you have to imagine that like a, like a, a country of like five million people like the level of organization that you need to have to coordinate all of that thing is like it's immense you can't just be like a group of funny activists who are like having funny parties and doing like random things you like really need to be like serious and you need to be like focused and you need to have like a direction and and that's what i mean about cryptocurrency right now it's like a bunch of kids who they have like they have too much money and they're not really they don't really work that hard you know like a lot of people is like very unfocused in, in, in and wasting their time and you know, it's not like, and, and also the leadership is ineffective. 
it's incompetent and it's not giving a good example to people. That experience you had where you saw a very, uh, a society under um, really intense external threats, um, fascism, if we're thinking about the Islamic State, what do you think the Bitcoin community could learn from that, from the uh, the group? I mean, I guess sort of autonomous Kurdistan at this point. Um, I think people can learn a lot. Uh, the biggest advice I'd give someone is don't read about Rojava, but actually read the books of Ocalan, which is Manifesto for a Democratic Civilization, parts one and part two, which is honestly the best book that I read. It inspired me a lot. Um, you know, and it's a book that you have to kind of study because he mentioned a lot of historical events and a lot of thinkers and you have to kind of go off and study those people. Also interesting is the article by Adam Curtis uh, on Rajava. If you search Adam Curtis Rajava, that's a very interesting uh, article. And Adam Curtis also made a documentary called Hypernormalization, which talk about politics and technology and um, uh, Trump and Putin and ISIS and all of these things. Very interesting documentary. Um, so on that level, I think what that can contribute to people is like giving them like a wider perspective of of political systems, political philosophy, uh, e economics and sociology, which uh, enable them to more effectively uh, direct their their focus and their energy. Um, but then the second point is, is uh, uh, now we need to organize and we need to organize to be able to spread our ideas and to be able to support the people in our community, to be able to work on projects that are valuable, you know, to find the resources to support people. And uh, we need to create a structure and also we need to educate people. And that means, and that's what, what we're essentially... Um, I've been trying to do for the last few years, which has been difficult because I haven't got any support. So I've had to kind of try to gather resources, but, you know, we need to start to come up with a proper structure and not just be like a structure, which is engaged on like doing things and, you know, like paying salaries to people, but also having a space uh, inside of that, which you know, uh, can support uh, support uh, people with potential, uh, support or enhance or develop our human resource, which every time I go to any of these blockchain crypto conferences, there is like a huge amount of young people that they're really ambitious, they're very creative, you know, they realize that like this thing is going to be big in the future and they want in and you know they're like that's a and they're very smart and it's like a valuable human resource that at the moment you just end up like becoming doing slave work for random companies or silly things and you know what we need to do is we need to create a base which can bring these people in and educate them and give them orientation and direction because that's our future uh, our future is not the um the you know, really expensive people that we give salaries to now, you know, which maybe if you're making a business, 
We need to do that so you can deliver a product. But we also need to be investing in our future. And that means like our, the education of the next of like the next phase of, of our movement. And, you know, there's very little um, attention that's given to that or very. And, and everybody's like kind of got this mentality of like, OK, well, what's in it for me? Like, what do I get out of this? You know, when it's like, you know, it's like it's such a it's such an important directive for us as a whole yet the amount of investment that it requires comparatively very small compared to some of these really silly projects that we know everybody knows is not going to go anywhere uh, but the problem is it's like everything have to be fa- have to be um, phrased in terms of a short-term investment which is like kind of a tragedy because mm-hmm. you know if we can't uh, together as a community pull our resources to invest in strategic areas that are good for us as a whole then you know we are going to get dominated by other groups who can and do have the capacity to do that which is either states or, or global corporations in, in like at the root of this conversation is what you're saying about um, the need for a strong narrative. Um, and first, I, I'm just curious from your personal experience, given that you've probably um, evolved to have a very, uh, a much more complex narrative about your life and sort of what you believe in now. But when you were a kid, um, what kind of narratives moved you? Um, the open source one was like really big and um, you know I was I thought that was uh, the most amazing thing in the world that people all around the world were building technology and they weren't building it for profit but they were building it because they believed in open source and I always said to myself like why is nobody talking about this Um, why is this not like a thing that's being like talked about in Hollywood, like in the movies, is like such a momentous like uh, un- undertaking. Um, but I was also, uh, I got really involved in like anarchist, activist uh, communities and, and politics. And, and, I, and I, I was like, wow, this is like very different. Um, you know, people are, are like living together and you know there's like mutuality and there's like shared sense of values and it's it's nice because you know um because like you can be around people who like share your ideas and you know um together you're like trying to create something trying to create something big and that's you know a very different way of living to the society that we that most people exist in which is like you do your work and you have like your like your own atom in like a sea of atoms and just you know like you can feel like you know just you fade out of existence um that's that's important and that's something we've kind of like lost sight of and kind of what we need to restore back to the society Yeah, I mean, when you talk about the open source movement, the best example that I've encountered in my experience, um, at least in the last two or three years, has been 
sort of the work that um, people do on the tour project. Um, I don't know if you if you uh, have interact often with the tour community, but yeah, I'm involved in uh, the the tour project actually got taken over by SJWs, and there was all these problems with sex scandals and whatever. And it's like I just I don't understand. Like this happens all the time. Like why people can't be professional, you know? Like why also this is all these leftist um, infiltration of of projects and you know. And yeah, it's very disappointing. Um, but I'm involved in NIM now, which is um, an alternative to Tor because we know Tor has been broken. And NYM, T E C H, mm-hmm. NIM Tech, um, we know that Tor has been broken for many years. And, um, but with um, the shutdowns of all these drug markets recently, it's kind of like definitive, like there's like conclusively the um, um, authorities and agencies like have a handle on tour. So Mixnet is an alternative proposal that's existed for many years. And now um, we're developing this technology, but not just developing this technology, but also interested in like the entire ecosystem of uh, tools and libraries that we want to create to enable people to build anonymous products. In particular, a focus on cryptocurrency and dark finance. Now I'm working on a on a project which is so I'm 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 helping to develop NIM, but I'm also working on um, uh, you know um, yeah I'm working on uh, anonymization of cryptocurrencies and uh, uh-huh. products to do that and also uh, and, and that's kind of like my initial goal is how to anonymize cryptocurrencies uh, but uh, the same technology that I'm building out uh, will be kind of like a platform or like a, a library that we can use to build uh, other products like uh, exchange like an exchanges decentralized exchanges uh, marketplaces, and then also like a generalized platform for like issuing um, uh, anonymized smart contracts and different financial instruments. Are you planning on integrating Bitcoin in those projects? Yeah, all of all of the cryptocurrencies. Um, can you do you have like a name for any of them outside of NIM? Or no, it's is not that sort of like public. Yeah. Being... And I and I also wanted to ask about. Um, the uh, hacker academy that uh, you've been running in Spain. Um, can you sort of tell me where you are with that? I, I guess these are probably the projects you're working on right now. Um, yeah. Um, academy, but can you? Tell me there's a lightning that? hack day that's happening in uh, April in the academy. The academy in Barcelona is um, the first academy that we're making. Like the plan is in the future to have more academies, and. Um, the academy is one part of like a, a bigger uh, thing, which is like the incubator or the hack lab. So we want to start to bring in projects and um, interesting projects and, and kind of nurture these projects and develop them into entities or products 
um, have some of these products be profitable so you can bring in income and we can invest it into like other pro products and the academy is like one part where we want to kind of be able to do training for people like maybe uh, some classes about uh, cryptocurrency but then also like also like more intensive trainings like for people that either for like our organization or for the for the people that are working on different projects uh, there's like a more commercial aspect and then there's like a more non-commercial aspect i wanted to ask too about uh one thing i've heard you know i know you're you've worked with uh vitalik in the past or or at least collaborated with him um he was the original guy who covered your release of, of dark wallet uh for bitcoin magazine and i know when the uh, ethereum fundraising sort of started to pop off i think you were in syria at the time but i was just curious about uh your thoughts on vitalik you, you mentioned that a little bit earlier i've heard a lot of people talk about when when people lose their way about a, a good thing to do sort of like all these disagreements that happen in the community a good thing to do is sort of to remind them why they got involved and to sort of be able to channel that so i was curious if you could remind vitalik of anything um back from I guess the pre-Ethereum days, what do you think you would remind him of? That he was in our hack lab and we were feeding him and not just him, but other developers and offering a space uh, for people to come and to work on projects and training people. And therefore it's, it's, he has a duty or responsibility to pay it forwards to the next generation of developers. Yeah, this whole conversation we've been hitting on narrative, you, you've sort of talked about what you think is, is wrong or just the fact that the Bitcoin community doesn't really have a cohesive narrative right now. Um, wh what do you think, what's your vision of Bitcoin's narrative if it is to be successful? The legacy of civilization that we live in is a state-based civilization. Um, it's a it's a civilization which is based off of based off of um, a hierarchical system of control, specialization of of labor, which lead to all the modern problems we have with like alienation and and domination and authority, and so you know we want to create a different kind of society, one which is free in which people have liberty. Um, in which the natural wealth of people's creative energies is is used effectively, is is uh, nurtured and developed, and uh, this emerging field of cryptography offer us a power, uh, the power that we can we can use in particular in, inside of the economic sphere by building out financial networks using the tactic of counter economics to create uh, markets and financial instruments which we can, we can use as a tool to subvert state power and state control and create spaces for where uh, marginalized communities or actors can operate outside of state control. I don't know how well I answered that for you, um, but I'm always interested to improve. So I, I had a question about uh, Dark Wallet specifically. Mm -hmm. um, in, uh the article that Aaron Van Weirdham just put out about Dark Wallet, 
um, he, he pointed out that it's been alleged and unverified about whether or not the Islamic State used Dark Wallet for fundraising. I mean, I'm sure you're, you've heard about people talking about this. I was curious about what your position thoughts were on that, um, if you, and even if you could verify it or unverify it. They didn't, um, they didn't say they used Bitcoin for fundraising. They said, sorry, they didn't say they, they used Dark Wallet it. for fundraising. They, they said that, um, they, they said Bitcoin is a great tool for fundraising and they have, and they do use Bitcoin, but they did say that they were looking forward to the release of Dark Wallet and uh, it would be like a great tool and that they ask Allah to hasten its usage. And you asked me what I'm thinking about that. I was like, there were, there was three major events that year, which was, uh, the first was that the European um, central bank released a report about the top five key money laundering threats and dark wallet was one of those key threats which is pretty fucking cool i don't know what's more cool than having a european central bank put you in their report about key money laundering threat the second thing was that news about isis isis saying you know dark wallet is going to be great we want it to happen and then the third thing was that the a few like I think like a a week or two after the Islamic State report, there was a high level meeting in the U.S. government with uh, uh, members of like generals of the military, you know, heads of government and heads of Bitcoin of cryptocurrency industry, and uh, they were talking about that report from ISIS. And they were talking about how to prevent it being used by terrorists. So that was. A reaction to that ISIS report so you know that was you know that was pretty cool do you are you planning on releasing a newer version of dark wallet well I guess I kind of touched on that when I talked about anonymizing cryptocurrencies but the thing is, is a lot of people are going oh when is dark wallet coming out when is I'm not gonna release a shitty product with CoinJoin. I'm just not like CoinJoin is broken completely so um, but I will develop something that's good, that's, that's better. It sounds to me like you, a lot of times uh, you're very spiritually conscious and you've also spent a lot of time learning about religion. I, I mean, I imagine it, at the very least just to sort of understand the nuances uh, in Syria when you were there. Um, and I was curious, uh, a lot of people uh, do compare Bitcoin to a religion in some ways. I have my own thoughts about that, but I was curious about um, how you feel about Bitcoin being com compared to a religion and whether or not that's a, that's a good fit or there are limitations to it. I guess like we can say like a cult is a form of a religion, but you know, where uh -huh. they were just in the cult because I mean, like when we talk about religion, like religion is like a deep thing. It's very personal to a lot of people. And, you know, I don't want to like, I don't want to like insult any Christians or Muslims or, or people like who are like very or like Buddhists or any of these people that are like very in touch or like they had some kind of like deep experience in their life. Um, and, you know, uh, cryptocurrency is quite it's quite it's, it's quite lacking in comparison, to be honest. Um, Maybe, maybe in, in some point, maybe we can say it has like an ideology, but I wouldn't say like it's it's by itself an ideology. 
but it is important that we we have yeah. some kind of philosophy we have some kind of belief system there you know and that's kind of what we've been talking about by narrative but i compare it more to a cult than a religion i don't know yeah yeah i, I think that sounds uh more accurate to me at least um just given the fact that i think it's sort of you know a movement but um susceptible to the same same issues which we've talked about which uh, to me it seems like religion in some form yeah. seems to sort of uh protect against yeah um but religions also get corrupted as well like um sure. as, as we see today like and it's it's kind of like in this like um globalist materialist age religions kind of like receded into this shell of its former self and to be honest like a lot of the religions they come from like an older time and we live in a different era so there need to be this kind of reformation or transformation or evolution and maybe we need to like develop into something new in fact like um Ochoan's ideas is, is basically like a religion you know he, he talks a lot about nature and spirituality and politics i don't really draw the line between ideology and religion i think they're quite similar there's a lot of overlap yeah some of the, i mean some of the strongest ideologies during their their peak war religions like communism in russia yes yeah. marx basically was i don't know if it's like i've had this discussion with someone before where they said marx was not a prophet but he was kind of like a materialist prophet yeah yeah certainly i mean satoshi's earliest writings about bitcoin indicate that he um saw bitcoin as sort of like a political uh tool uh mainly mainly against the use of uh current economic financial systems uh central banks most of all do you do you see bitcoin as a political tool <laughs> um yes <laughs> Well, I guess the reason why I ask is because technology, you know, some people argue that technology in itself is not political. And I've heard people oh. say this about Bitcoin, that Bitcoin by itself is not political. What's what's neutral about I think it, an autonomous killer drone? It seems like it's made for a purpose. I think I think there's I think there is confusion when it comes to the word politics, because sometimes people use it as a as a sort of identity kind of mm -hmm. thing. Democrat and Republicans. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah. I think that's uh, a, a very different kind of politics than what we're talking about with Bitcoin. Um, but I think that's people saying that Bitcoin's inherently apolitical. I, I think that it's a reaction to that. Uh -huh. But um, I guess I was curious about to hear your thoughts about Bitcoin as a political instrument. Well, we can actually develop this. Um this concept further and we can actually maybe say that both people are right or you know both people are like incomplete in the truth which is um you know ted kaczynski in the anti-tech revolution he kind of say that technology have this kind of innate trajectory contained within it and it's kind of got its its destiny it's like destined to be like a tool of oppression so what we say as and this is what lewis mumford say and also Ochilan is that 
the actually the real thing is the state civilization and the, the technology is shaped by different ideological forces in society and that you know technology as we know it and the technology that we used is being kind of co-opted or being shaped by state civilization and that's why we're intimately familiar with the domination that is kind of enabled by technology which is kind of represented at its apex by the pyramids which is these gigantic gigantic like monolithic structure that were built by slaves but then at the same time it's like okay technology is influenced by politics by different ideologies and competing philosophies vying for power and they continually like develop new technologies or they invest their energies to like you know like birth or advanced technology but then at the same time like maybe the technology as a force itself is 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 not got any kind of trajectory it's like maybe just like it's it's this thing that's like guided by these different forces yeah there's like a greek word for that which is i think uh it's it's not mechanism but it's it's machina or something like that yeah, because the alternative is if uh, technology does have a teleological force inside of it, then there's really no hope for us. We're kind of like going to lose to the AI. Yeah, that's like the ultimate idea. Um, in some ways, I think that, uh, yeah, I mean, this is when people are, talk about how cryptocurrency being used is, is a sociological movement. The effort to sort of use technology to change society, I, I think, is... I think that does come down to like uh, what a lot of people who invest in Bitcoin are believing, whether they choose to or not. But there's obviously more complexities in, in how that actually works because there's sociological um, influence on Bitcoin too. Anyway, those are all my questions. Uh, thanks a lot for taking the time, man. No worries. Um, yeah, yeah, nice to talk with you. Thanks. Thanks a lot for your questions. Uh, maybe it's, it's it was like you saw in some way. Bye. The Bitcoin Magazine podcast is a BTC media produced podcast on the Let's Talk Bitcoin network. You can find us on Twitter at Bitcoin Magazine and you can find out about other engaging shows we produce by subscribing to our feed on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time.